You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Good evening and welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and on tonight's show, our resident wine guru, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, returns for my favourite subject, that is of course wine. We'll be hearing about a fascinating new book called Artful Eating from its author, Karina Melvin, when she joins us by phone. And Mary Fitzgerald from the Fitzgerald's Woodlands House Hotel and Spa in Adair County Limerick has details about a wonderful event taking place this Sunday that is bound to put us all in the festive spirit. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with me here at the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation. So to start the show off tonight, we're joined in studio now by our resident wine expert, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants. Cheers. Chin chin. Salut. Schleinte. Ron, you're very welcome to the studio this evening. We have a very important topic to discuss tonight because Christmas is coming. We're not talking about Christmas wines, but we're talking about whenever you're out for that special meal now coming up to Christmas, how to choose your wine, how to order your wine, how to really get the most for your money, I suppose, whenever you're you're choosing a bottle of wine in a restaurant. Yes, Sharon. It's, um, you know, some people become very intimidated by wine lists uh, when they see them. And I just thought we'd give it kind of brief synopsis of what a wine list is like and, and the reason that things are put in certain places on them. It might help when you're with your group of 12 or 14 or 20 staff and you sit down and somebody hands you a wine list and you get nervous for the first few minutes. So just to get you through that and uh, explain what different things mean, I thought might help. Because I think a lot of people, myself included, there's certain types of wines that I like. I see them. I look at the number beside them. And I don't mean the number on the list. Mm. I mean the number with the euro sign beside it to see how much it is. Yeah, that listen, the, as anyone will tell you that produces wine lists or restaurants, that uh, the out of a wine list of 20 or 25 items, which would be about average uh, on a wine list, um, it's the same six or eight wines that sell all the time. And price dictates all that, really. Um, and the rest of the more upmarket products or the more obscure products sell much less, but they still have to be there because the wine list has to be interesting. It has to look interesting. And you're looking for that one person. The whole idea of designing a wine list is that when you sit down, you have to think of every customer that you have coming in. You're not thinking of your, your average customer. You're thinking of the one that's more, a little more out there, maybe looking for something different. And you want to make sure you have a bottle of wine for them because if you don't have a bottle of wine for them, you could lose out on that sale if you're a restaurant owner. Uh, or they may have a glass instead of a bottle, you know, all those kind of things. That's very important. And price is a huge uh, issue there as well now, that you don't overprice your wine list, um, because that will just push people away from buying wine as well. So I am always harping on to, to restaurant owners to make sure that they, they offer good value for money at all times. So the first section is usually house wine. Yes. Mind you, uh, a lot of restaurants now you'll see are tending to hide away their house wine a little bit more. It may not be on the first page anymore. Uh, they might tend to put it at the back of the list. Because if you go open up wine list and see, oh, there's a Pinot Grigio uh, from Italy. Uh, don't recognize the name of it, but it's 21 euros. That's perfect. Done. List closed. The other four pages are absolutely wasted. No one ever knows they're there. Whereas at least if you put the house wines at the back, the people have to leaf through the first three pages. So at least they know that you have a Pinot Grigio that's 26 euros. That's a slightly better product, maybe. Or that you have a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc at 32 euros, which is excellent value. And you know the product, you've seen it before. 
and it gives that chance to look through it. Whereas if it's at the front, you're done. And uh, it's uh, I'd advise always that they put them at the back. What is the average spend on a bottle of wine? Well, it very much depends on the kind of restaurant it is you're in. Um, that dictates what their house wine price level will be. Uh, house wine ranges from anything from 18 or 19 euros, which is very good value now, up to, God, up to 40 if you really want it, depending on where you're eating. I think a lot of people would say now, yeah, they'd be splashing out if they were spending 40 euros on a bottle of wine. You know, because let's talk, let's just imagine we're in your average style restaurant. Mm. You know, the two of you are out for a nice meal, but it's not, you're not in a Michelin star restaurant, for example. But you're in a restaurant that maybe has won a few awards and is well mm. enough known. So what what sort of price their are we talking about? Their house wine will tend to start at around 22 or 23 euros. That'll tend to be their house wine. They tend to have a bit of a gap then that jumps up to about 26 or 27 euros. But what I would, I would my little hint on, on choosing wine particularly is that the for restaurants, the house wine is a very important product for them. It tends to be a pretty good product normally. They, it's the one they sell the most of. Their house wine, it might be two house wines, there could be three. They will be about 60 to 70% of their sales will be in that bracket. So it's important that they're good. Um, but oftentimes there's better value just above that. Uh, at the 27, 28 euro mark, because they don't tend to price them up as much as house wine would get. Um, they tend to take less out of them. And actually, the ones that go up to 32, 34, 36 tend to be much better value for money, if you know what I mean, because the margin isn't near as high on those products because they sell fewer of them. And if they were to take the same margin, it would mean they'd be very high priced and they wouldn't sell at all. So I, I believe, listen, if you're, most of the wine is all sold under 30 euros on wine list probably 90% of it. But coming to Christmas is a slightly different time. People tend to trade up slightly. Like we sell a lot more Sancerre, a lot more Chablis, a lot more New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, with Reds in a lot more Australian Shiraz, good Italian wines like Repasso. They tend to sell a little bit more at Christmas time. In terms of staff then, it's great if you have staff in a restaurant who are very knowledgeable about the wine because it's nice to be able to say mm. to a member of staff, well, what would you recommend? So we, you know, we like white, we like Sauvignon Blanc or Pinot Grigio or whatever it is. What would you recommend? And often the staff, don't, they just don't have all that knowledge that you'd like them to have. Well, that's, a, you know, it's a huge problem for restaurants and, and they try and they, they try hard. And I, I do a good bit of training for restaurants where we come in and do an hour in the afternoon the problem is that most of them are operating on a lot of part-time staff, whereas they only get them for when they're driving back from college, working on a Friday night and maybe a Saturday. They don't have time to train them. Most of the work is done on the job. Um, and the wine kind of loses out because the food is pretty complicated as it is uh, for, for young staff. So they find the wine is just an absolute no-go area for a lot of them. Um, but you can, if you just take back to the best experiences you've had in a restaurant, um, it, the food can be fantastic. Um, but the ones that really stand out are, you know, the ones where you got someone serving you who's not over the top now, but who's just very confident, helped you out, you know, as in said, um, you know, thinking of having a glass of wine, absolutely have a glass of wine, um, or don't want to have red or white and say, listen, why don't you have two glasses of white to start and have a half bottle of red? You know, we have four half bottles in red. And that's like, if you think somebody has that bit of confidence and they're telling you something is nice, you tend to believe them, first of all. And you tend to like it because generally they're, they're, they're telling you the, the truth. Um, and you just love to be pointed in a, in a direction. And they're very memorable nights. And you can always remember back to a place. God, I was there and that guy was very good. Or that young girl was fantastic. She's only a young girl, but she was really, really good. 
And I think they stand out much more than food does a lot of the time. Um, so it's very important. But then for the restaurant owners, it's an absolute nightmare trying to find people. So I'd imagine, yeah, it is. And and if you do find somebody, then there's usually a cost associated with that that you might not be in a position to, to pay, even though it probably is a very good investment. It is, but it, it's cost isn't their main concern because they would pay if they could actually find someone to pay. The issue is that nobody looks at the restaurant service um, uh, as a career at all. If you go to Spain or you go to Portugal and you sit down in a, in a you know, in a in a square that has eight or ten restaurants in it, and just look around, look at the average age of the people that's working in the restaurant. It's a career. This, there's guys and, and ladies in their 30s, 40s, 50s. This is a career. They do it every summer or they do it every year. They have kids. They've put their kids through college. This is a, it's a serious business for them. Whereas we don't look at that at all here. We look at, look at working in the restaurant business as something you do when you're 17 to 25. And if you're still doing it when you're 25, then you know, you need to move on and find a different career. Whereas it's an awful shame because it's uh, what happens then when you try and open up a really serious restaurant, you find it impossible to find the people. And in our industry here in Ireland, we do have some people who are very well known for being very good managers. Like Declan Maxwell in mm. Luna, formerly of Chapter One, is, is a person that comes to mind that obviously has made a very good career Absolutely. out of hospitality management. Oh, it's it's a fantastic career. Um, my daughter is in uh, LIT at the moment, uh, doing event management, and for the in a four year course, a degree course, and there's a hundred percent employment, hundred percent employment out of event management. Um, they've had um, three career days already. This is first year now, first semester of first year, and they've had three career days where companies or hotels, uh, PR companies have come in. To, to show them what they do and to take their names and their CVs that for, for employment. I mean, there's just so much employment, it's frightening. And it's not just um, um, restaurant business. Kitchens are absolutely, you know, they're, they're wiped out as far as staff is concerned. Um, and the fact that the rest of Europe is doing pretty well as well, we're not getting the, the influx of foreign, foreign kitchen workers or restaurant workers that we used to get at all anymore. So it's, it's a real uh, problem ongoing. We've brought some wine in tonight that you're going to talk to us about. Yes. Well, I thought just when you're looking at a wine list in a restaurant, there's, you know, you know what you drink at home. You, you might have drink Pinot Grigio. You might drink Sauvignon Blanc. Um, but you'll oftentimes on a restaurant list, you'll find a bit of French product, which may be a bit more obscure and harder to figure out. But just to be clear on a couple of points, first of all, that the vast majority of, of French wine and white particularly is either Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay. That's the reality. It's fairly straightforward, really. There's more obscure ones, and they tend to blend them a bit together more than the New World does. But like uh, they, all the Sancerres, the, the Hope Pachu, lots of stuff in the Loire Valley, all Sauvignon Blanc, every bit of it. Now, it's very different than a lot of the New World ones. They don't tend to be as flowery. They tend to be more acidic, um, but, but work really well with food. And for reds, then, there's a huge amount of Cabernet, huge amount of Merlot, and Syrah, which is Shiraz. So it's not as complicated as it actually seems. Um, but just have a look through the list and, and look, you know, the descriptions that are under them, some of them aren't that helpful because they tend to be fairly uh, flowery descriptions on, you know, uh, leather and cocoa beans and stuff, which absolutely means nothing to anybody, probably most of the time. Whereas I, I'm always trying to push the fact that you tell them exactly what's in the bottle. If it doesn't say what's in the bottle, then tell them if it's French product, 
that says Chateau Bellevue, you tell them it's Cabernet and it's Merlot. This is a blend of Cabernet and Merlot. And I tell you, it'll triple the sales of the product because if nobody knows what it is, they just can't buy it. Yeah, that's right. You're yeah. absolutely right that the right message has to be there yeah, for people absolutely. to understand what they're buying and want to buy it. Um, but uh, just simply ask the question. When you get a wine list, ask the question. Um, you know, it might be the person that's serving you that know, but surely somebody will know that's there. And just ask them you're looking for something nice, say a group of eight or ten people or 12 or 14 people. The main thing is to get something that's going to suit a crowd. Um, so Sauvignon Blanc and White works very well because that's the most popular white by far. Um, Cabernet or Merlot or a blend of both probably works pretty well with a, a group of people for reds. Whereas something like Shiraz is a bit heavier, um, it mightn't be as Pinot Noir, is a bit light, so maybe it mightn't suit particular people. So it's just a matter. And listen, there's no way to spend too much because, you know, probably a night out like that is expensive enough without really pushing the boat out on far as the wine. There's great value on wine on wine lists around the 22, 24, 26 bracket. Okay. Well, let's talk about the Pinot Grigio that you have. Yes, this is Nosvaldo. This is a restaurant-only product. It uh, has a cork, um, not a screw cap. It's from um, uh, Veneto in Italy. Really good quality um, Pinot Grigio, a bit better than the normal kind of house wine. It sits slightly above that, uh, but it's a smashing product, um, and I like it, and I, I'm not a big fan of Pinot Grigio. I actually like that product. It has a bit of depth to it, a bit more than Pinot Grigio has normally. Yeah, that's a lovely Pinot Grigio. I have personal experience yeah, of it. Yeah, I is, really like that It one, is yeah. a lovely one. We'll stay with the white then and go to the Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, the Vistamar Sauvignon Blanc. This is a Reserva, um, um, Sepia Sauvignon Blanc um, from Vistamar. is a very very big producer. Um, we have this on a couple of wine lists, actually, very local to here. Grisano uh, sits on a wine list around 28 or 29 euros. It's that kind of product, uh, both house wine. Just explain the Reserva. Do you pay more for a Reserve wine? You do generally, yeah. Um, is it just a marketing ploy? It depends what part of the world it came from. Um, uh, like we have a Spanish product there where reserve actually means something on the label. It means it has a criteria that it needs to fit. Uh, as far as Chile is concerned, there was no actual criteria it needs to fit. But as far as Vistamar is concerned, these producers, they have uh, their pouring wines, which is a certain level. Then they have the reserve ones, and they tend to come from particular patches within the, within the estate, which are fairly big patches to turn out because the production is pretty big. But they're from a particular vineyard, whereas a lot of the stuff down the ladder would be blended together from various places. So that's what reserve means in Chile. But I can write reserve in any label you want in Chile. There's absolutely no... So that then in Spain, it has to meet certain criteria. In France, yeah. does it have to meet certain Not criteria? Not really, no. Okay. Is Spain the only country that no, really... No, Italy has the same... Okay. Um, has the same... Uh, they're a little um, uh, less straightforward in Italy. It's operated on where you are in Italy. So it may not mean the same thing in southern Italy as it does in northern Italy. There might be a slight difference. But Spain is across the board. There's just no way. Like this Crianza, Reserva, Gran Reserva. That's the levels. And it's all about how long it's spent in the barrel. Okay. For so, reds now. There's no whites. So for this, Rioja from um, Spain. And it's, it's a reserve. It's a reserve. Yeah. And it's 2013. So yeah. It has to spend a minimum of 12 months in a barrel. Minimum. It has to be in an oak barrel. And an actual barrel. It has to be. It, it's very expensive to put it in a barrel. Mm. So anything that's, that's um, like this uh, Spanish products that has been in a barrel, it's going to be costing you, in a, in a shop, it's going to be costing you 16 or 17 euros a bottle. And you know? so when you go into a restaurant, like what it's is their markup? You, yeah. Like it's usually 100% at least added on to it. It depends. It depends. A lot of them, a lot of them won't pick products that are available in shops. 
um, they tend to pick slight products are slightly better. I do like to see wine on a, on a wine list that isn't readily available. I don't mm. like to think that there's a wine that I've sat and had at home last week that I spent 10 euros on that it's now costing me 30 or 40. I do find that a bit upsetting. <laughs> well, it's, it's a fine line for the restaurant to deal with that because the restaurant is thinking, OK, I don't want anything that shows up anywhere that anyone kind of recognises. And then you have people coming in looking at the list and God, I don't recognise anything. And then they find it hard to pick something. So there's a fine line there. But it's it's OK then for, like, Pinot Grigio does... It's a matter of great deal. People drink Pinot Grigio will tend to go with what's listed on the wine list. Um, Spain is pretty good as well because if it has reserve on it, people trust that certain amount. And it has Crianza, they trust that. Um, but it's a bit more obscure than when you go to Chile, for example. It's a bit more harder to, to manage because there's some awful Chilean wine in the country. Just awful. And uh, it's cheap. And it's just because you can't find it in a shop doesn't mean it's any good. You know, it doesn't mean it's any better. Um so they're a bit more tricky, whereas Italy is a bit more straightforward. You'll recognise the names like, you know, Ripasso or Valpolicella or Amarone or Chianti. You'll recognise those as being kind of, you know, they're, they're a certain kind of quality. And you have a Ripasso there from 2014. Yes. Uh, this is a Ripasso from Campagnola. Um, Ripasso is a Valpolicella grape. Um, it's, it's one of my favourite wines. It's, it's not too heavy, yet it's a real bit of depth to it. Fantastic, but it works really well this time of year. Again, that's a 36, 37 euro bottle of wine on a wine list now. So it may not be for everybody. Yeah, but it looks like a lovely bottle. It is a cork again. Cork again, yeah, absolutely. Italy's more into its corks, is it? It is more into it, except for the pouring levels, you know, where you have the more primitivos, the more, um, um, you know, the Tribbiano and the whites or the Montepulgianos tend to be in screw caps. Okay. And then you have two more. Are they both red? Is that white in that one or is that, yeah, they're Uh, both red? That's a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, a Matua. from the central um, Otega, it's a smashing bottle of wine. Again, over 40 euros on a wine. Really? Yeah. Worth it, though. Smashing. Is, and is it popular? Is it one of your most popular? It's actually quite that? new to us. Um, it's only in the last couple of months we've taken it in, and they've a smashing white as well, but it's the red we really got it for. Small quantities don't produce an awful lot of it. Okay. It's really good. One to keep an eye out for them. Just yes. remind the, the Matua. Matua. It's Two and more. It's, a lovely grey label with the blue. Yeah, it is very... It's very New Zealand are very label. good at labels. They're mm. very good at marketing. They, they put a lot of work into it and they make them very eye-catching and, and uh, the whole package is always pretty good from New Zealand, we find. And then you've one more, it's a Malbec. Malbec, because Malbec is just hugely popular. It's And it's the time of year it really comes into its own in, in the winter time because it's more of a, you know, cold nights, kind of full-bodied reds kind of product. Works very well at red meat, um, uh, steaks even, you know, heavy dishes besides that. And this one from Pascal Tosso from uh, Mendoza. That's good value. It's about 28, 29 euros in a wine list. That's not too Just bad. Just above cost wine. Yeah. But it's a lovely product. So the prices range from which one's the cheapest one? Well, probably the Pinot Grigio would sit probably about the cheapest uh, on the whites and then the Malbec would be on the reds. Okay. And then the most expensive one is your Matua. Yes. Okay. But definitely one to keep an eye out for. Yes, indeed. All right. Great advice, Ron. Thanks very much. Hopefully no we'll see a spike now in the, the restaurant <laughs> wine sales. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, why not tr- give something new a try? You never know. It yeah. might turn out to be your favourite wine it. of all time. Yeah. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming in tonight. No bother. Thanks, Sharon. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. 
Welcome back to the best possible taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants had some tips about ordering good quality bottles of wine when you're out and gave us a great insight into the inner workings of a restaurant when it comes to the wine list. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at the new time of 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. Still to come tonight, we'll be hearing about a festive food event taking place this weekend in Ireland's prettiest village, Adair in County Limerick. Next, though, we're going to the phone to talk to author Karina Melvin about her new book, Artful Eating. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Karina, the artful eating, the psychology of lasting weight loss. This looks like an amazing book. Tell me about it. Thank you so much. Um, the book is kind of came out of a frustration that I had and so many of my clients had um, around the perceived approach to eating well and weight loss. And it seemed to me that there is such a focus on what we should be eating, what's good, what's bad, and even kind of an overcomplication of the issue. Um, And when I did a bit of research myself, Sharon, I found out that actually the most likely outcome from going on a diet is to put on more weight, which is quite a shocking thing if we actually acknowledge that fact. And so I wanted to create something that was an answer to that. And I was... um, planning on having a family of my own and really did not want to raise children. I have a little daughter now who were growing up in a world where dieting and frustration and dissatisfaction with our body is just part and parcel with everyday life. And um, I want to change that conversation. So the book isn't even about healthy eating as such. It's about the mind very much because you are a psychologist. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, so I'm looking. I'm looking at it from the perspective that the weight and our relationship with our body is the symptom, and when we focus on calories in and calories out, we're just perpetuating the symptom. And really, we need to look at the cause, and that's different for everybody. So, the point of the book is to figure out what is your personal relationship with food. What is the function of food for you, you know, whether it's binging, whether it's having a straight jacket, being very controlled, whether it's hopping from diet to diet, or whether it's feeling guilty about food or being dissatisfied with your body. Um, and so many people who would perhaps be drawn to weight loss programs or programs around food, I'm hoping that they pick up this book and realize that we're looking at it the wrong way around. And when we start to feel good in ourselves, when we start to question why we're eating and when we start to attune to our body and start to eat when we're actually hungry and enjoy our food rather than gobbling it down and feeling guilty or questioning should I be eating this or am I eating too much but when we start to change that really wonderful things happen. So you find whenever you set up your private practice that a lot of your clients were coming to you because they had issues with food? Yes well yes and no to be honest That wouldn't necessarily be what people would come to see me for. But what surprised me was that no matter what size, what age, what gender, somewhere along the way, food would crop up or a diet. I'm trying this diet or I've quit sugar or I'm, you know, giving up carbs. You know, that would come up 
somewhere along the way or or someone feeling unhappy with how they look and it just it seemed to me that it was a common thread and then um a while ago I was on a, a WhatsApp group and there was a bunch of girls celebrating something and they were like, oh, if only there was diet Prosecco, you know, and I was thinking, no, there shouldn't be diet Prosecco. And, and, and this push towards constantly looking for diet foods or foods that are necessarily good in order to enjoy them or eat them. I just really started to feel we need to change the story. And I love Jamie Oliver. I love what he does. And he's a great champion for trying to change how people approach weight loss. And he's recognizing that we have a huge problem. I mean, in this country, Sharon, by 2030, Ireland is predicted to be the most obese country in Europe. Um, So it's clear that what we're doing so far isn't working. And we need to really change the conversation and change our approach to food at our bodies and not be constantly worrying about what we're putting in our mouths. But that's just an easy thing. There's a lot more important things that we should be work- worrying about and focusing on. So that, that was the motivation behind writing the book. Yeah, that statistic about the obesity is a very scary statistic it because, is. you know, if the parents in the family are constantly adopting an attitude towards food that isn't necessarily the best one, then obviously that is being perpetuated down through the family line and passed down through generations. Absolutely. That's, and that is the problem. And I've worked with a lot of people because I have an online program. And so there's a lot of people that went through the online program before I wrote the book. So I've tested these theories. And I've had school principals go through the program and say, we need to create this program for kids. But my attitude is that it's about the adult behavior and it's no good learning something at school if you go home and your parents aren't acting in line with that. And so the beautiful thing about the book, I think, is that you read the book, you start to change your behaviors, your beliefs and your thoughts, and that permeates through the whole family. Um, And I've seen that happen time and again. Well, let's talk about the book in detail now, because I have it here in front of me. It's a beautiful book in terms of the cover Thank and everything is, is gorgeous. And whenever I first saw it, I thought it was going to be a cookbook like I flicked I through. And then I realized this is a book that you sit down and you read it. Yes, a few times, <laughs> actually, <clears throat> because there's so, there's so much in there, Sharon. Um, and, and a lot of it is really dispelling the myths and the preconceived ideas about how we should be approaching uh, food and our bodies. And I think that it's going to take a lot um, of reading and engaging and talking to start to change how we, how we view things because we're just so entrenched in fat and sugar are bad and, you know, carbs are bad, but, you know, coconut and quinoa is good, you know, so there's a lot of work to be done to change that perspective, which is why there's so much in the book. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about what is good for you and what isn't good for you. So yes. your your very first point in here is knowledge is power. Yes, yes. Because um, so many people say, I know it all. Like a lot of the people that will come to me now, because obviously I see clients specifically for weight loss, their opening sentence usually, Sharon, is I know it all. You know, I know about nutrition. I know about what I'm supposed to be eating. I'm just here for, to see you for motivation and accountability. And so the first section of the book is really dispelling those myths, recognizing how our body responds to weight loss. Because 
from an evolutionary perspective, it's not advantageous to lose weight. So as soon as we go on a diet, our metabolism slows down, we hold on to the weight because our body is thinking we're going into a famine. And so we have a set point, which is a range of weight which the body is happy to reside in. And no matter what you do, your body is going to push to maintain that set point, which is why diets don't work because we think about going on a diet for a couple of months or maybe a couple of weeks and then expecting to lose the weight and going back to our old behaviors. But the body responds differently. And so if we change our lifestyle, if we change our habits, if we change how we feel in ourselves, our behaviors will change. So there's there's a lot required um, to read the book, but I take you step by step and, and everything that I ask people to do is really enjoyable. And you have a 48-hour Kickstarter challenge. Tell us about that. Yes, I do. And I was, I was humming and humming about whether or not to keep that in the book because it's on my program, but people love it. The idea with this is it's kind of like what you would expect to see on an old-fashioned diet or a typical diet, which is 48 hours of eating, you know, vegetables, fruit, soups, juices, things like that. It's nothing to do with nutrition and it's nothing to do with losing weight. I mean, people lose a little bit of weight doing the 48-hour Kickstarter. It's all to do with our relationship to control. Because so many people, when when they come to see me about weight loss, they feel that they're, they, they need to be constantly in control of what they're eating. And when they're out of control, they lose the will to maintain a healthy, balanced relationship with food. They panic when they feel hungry. And, and, and so the idea with the 48-hour Kickstarter is by realizing just how little you need to sustain yourself and realizing how uh, we over-determine and overestimate the important Food is very important, but how much, how much effect it has on our feelings and our thoughts day to day throughout the course of a day. And when you do this 48 hours, you realize that you you do have absolute autonomy over your body. You can tolerate a little bit of hunger. You absolutely don't need to eat as much as you think you do to sustain yourself and to thrive and feel full of energy. And also attuning to taste of natural, homemade, good food. Then when you come off the 48 or Kickstarter and you eat something super sweet like a bag of jellies or a chocolate bar, a mass-produced chocolate bar, you suddenly think, ooh, I don't like the taste of that. Because the taste is so artificial. So really with the 48 hour Kickstarter, what I'm what I'm asking people to do is really re reacquaint themselves with their body, with recognizing body awareness, what it feels like to be hungry and, and, and savoring and tasting their food. So there's a bit of mental reprogramming going on with that rather than anything physiological. But is there a bit of a detox going on there as well over the 24 hours? Like you're saying that if you tasted a bag of jelly or sweets after it, that you, you kind of think, yeah, I don't really like that. Would you, I think That's the, the hope. Yeah, the craving for those things could actually have disappeared after those 48 hours if you've kind of detoxed your body from having an overload of sugar. I I, I doubt it, Sharon. Um, I think that, that, and I'm glad you kind of went on to that and talking about cravings and addiction to sugar because that's very much what people are talking about at the moment. The Kickstarter is, is not about that. It's about um, learning to recognise hunger and what it feels like in your body um but with sugar addiction i think that we can overestimate the effect that that has on us 
And I think people can get very um, enthusiastic about quitting sugar. But if you choose to quit sugar and that's the action that you take, that's something you need to sustain for your life, which I think is very, very extreme. And yes, sugar is an addictive substance, but for hundreds, if not thousands of years, we've managed very well to enjoy sugar and have healthy bodies. Um, I think that it's the overly processed foods that are problematic. So if you're going to have sugar, have it in a really good quality chocolate bar. Bake a cake yourself. Have it in that. Have it in some homemade jam or some really good artisanal jam. You know, sugar is not the enemy um, and it, and fat is not the problem. It's how we feel. You know, it's how we feel in ourselves. Do we identify as overweight? Do we identify as being unhappy in our body? And if that's the case, what we'll do is perpetuate that. But it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. We binge or we overindulge because we identify as being fat. Thin people think very differently for the most part. They don't think about food all the time. They enjoy food. They listen to their body and eat what they want. They don't feel the need to finish what's on their plate. Um, They can have a bit of sugar and it doesn't suddenly make them addicted. Um, So it's about reprogramming how you feel about yourself, how your environment is. So I talk in the book about clearing out your wardrobe, only wearing the best quality clothes and only wearing things that make you feel good. Um, I talk about decluttering your kitchen and your home so that your environment is a space where you feel comfortable. That's a lovely place to be. Um, Because when you're in a good mindset, you act in line with that. You know, you eat less, you think about what you're eating and enjoy it more. Um, And so it's a very holistic approach. The reason I make the comment about the detoxing is because I suffered one of those three day juice detoxes one time. Now, I couldn't I couldn't stick the three days because after about a day and a half, I felt my body went into shock because it, it, you know, it was like a post Christmas thing. I couldn't stop eating the crap that was around the house. And I said, God, I really need to detox this out of my body. So I tried the juice detox. And after about a day and a half, I just was violently ill. But once I got over, once I got over that, I had a severe craving for fruit, for vegetables, for healthy mm. thing, for healthy food. Mm. I really wasn't interested in all the stuff that I had felt the week before. I just couldn't, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't stop eating it. And even though it was still there in the house, I was like, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need it and I don't want it. So that's why I was saying about the, the 4D at our Kickstarter challenge that, uh, you know, for me, that was something like if I could do that for 48 hours, I feel that then I could progress on a very nutritious diet, healthy eating that I wouldn't be craving the stuff that I would have the cravings for. Wow, that's so lovely to hear. Yeah, because for me, the 48 hour Kickstarter is a marker. It's very symbolic. It's pressing the reset button and it's telling people, okay, I'm, or it's, it's telling oneself actually when they do it, okay. I'm, start, I'm embarking on something exciting, new and different. And I'm kind of crossing over from a negative relationship with food or maybe overindulging on, on overly processed food to kind of cleansing my mind, cleansing my spirit and stepping into a different way of being. But I am very clear in the book because everybody's different. You know, do it. Don't do it if you don't feel up to it or, or do it. At a, in a way that's easy for you. If you need to eat some, something else to supplement that throughout the 48 hours, that it, you are not a failure. That is not an issue. There's nothing strict or prescriptive about it. The whole point is to make it work for you. Um, and I think that we can we can sometimes um, 
beat ourselves up if we don't do something exactly the way we think we're supposed to do it. But there's no perfect way. Even thinking about it, contemplating it and having a few more soups or incorporating more fruit and veg into your diet um, is, is making a great, a great difference to how you feel and what you're doing to your body. But really with artful eating, the beauty of it for me, is that it, it's not just about eating lots of fruit and vegetables. I have cake. I have chocolate. I love bread. I get I get bread from my local bakery every other day, a nice French stick and have it with butter. You know, so the beauty of, of Artful Eating is that it's not about uh, eating the foods we think we should or eating what's good. It's about eating in moderation. It's about eating good quality food. It's about eating when you're hungry. And it's about ditching the overly processed junk that's out there that's full of all sorts of things that our body doesn't know how to process and you have a great section there it is how to eat the stuff you want when you want without gaining weight so alcohol sweet treats eating out holidays cravings because Christmas is coming and that is the time of the year when those tins of celebrations and heroes are everywhere that you're like yay I'll just have one and then it's like 10 later oh my god what was I thinking but you don't just have one yeah you don't just have one because they're 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 not very flavoursome they're mass produced and they're full they're they're full of artificial flavoring so you eat one and you're not satiated whereas as if when I talk about it in the book I got gifted a box and after I had my daughter earlier this year a box of beautiful artisanal chocolates and we all just marveled at how gorgeous they were and you could only eat one or two and I'm not talking dark chocolate or 70% or anything like that these were delicious like milk chocolate truffly type things but you couldn't eat too many of them so so I think it's about privileging quality so much, so much over quantity. And I'm reminded of um, a lovely client of mine last year who talked about every Christmas putting on that half a stone. And that she used to dread Christmas because it meant that she was going to put on half a stone. And last year, after going through the Artful Eating program, she said she didn't put on a pound. In fact, she lost one or two, but didn't mind that. And she it was the first Christmas where she didn't worry about food. And she didn't overthink food. She did the principles, eat when you're hungry, stop when you're full, enjoy the food, savor each mouthful, chew, uh, only eat good quality food, ask yourself before you eat, am I hungry? Do I want this? Uh, and those are kind of really magical little tools in your back pocket that will give you the coordinates to eat well and not overindulge. And it's the exact opposite of what we think, which is don't touch any of the food, you know, um, you know, have uh, avoid it. Don't drink too much alcohol because you'll overeat. Um, and then we overthink things, you know. All great advice. But whenever that voice, you're saying, am I hungry? Do I need this? And the voice is saying, I want, I want, I want, I want. What do we do then? But the voice, you see, the voice doesn't say, I want, I want, I want. Because when you go through the artful eating process, that voice stops, which is what so great about it. Now, there's a lot involved in getting to that point, and I have cognitive hypnosis audios to help people um, reinforce the principles and values of the artful eating process. But when you take off the straitjacket, Sharon, and this is what people find so hard to believe, but in actual fact, we need to think about it this way because we know that the old way dieting deprivation does not work. Um, when we take off the straitjacket and allow ourselves the autonomy to feel freedom around food, um, we don't have that urgency or that desperate need. And I talk about emotional eating, which is something slightly different. 
and cravings and how to address them also, which is around feeling good, questioning what's going on when you're trying to fill up that void with, you know, a packet of biscuits or a large packet of crisps. There are other things you can do and I have tasks and strategies to combat that throughout the book. But really the most amazing thing I find is people, especially people who would talk about struggling with binging, when they go through the artful eating process, they're like, I cannot believe how freeing it is. It's just so liberating that I don't have that kind of urgency, fear or anxiety around food. And you do have some recipes there in it as well that, you know, that that look really delicious. Thank you. Um, Yeah, like I'm not a great cook. (laughs) I'm not a great cook, but um, but I'm a trier and I love cooking. And so I recipes there because what I've done is given people a sample week of what it would look like to, to go to eat if you were eating artfully, shall we put it that way. Um, and it's just simple, good quality food. I think we have, there's so many gorgeous cookbooks and great food bloggers out there that we tend to overcomplicate eating well. When really a couple of ingredients like a tomato with a bit of crusty bread, some olive oil, some onions or shallots and some herbs and you've got something absolutely marvelous you know and and that's so tasty and so easy to make two minutes so a lot of what I advocate is really fast simple good quality food to make so that you can take your time sitting down and eating it and savoring each mouthful Um, and you can't go wrong when you're buying good quality produce Um, everything tastes good when it's when it's really good quality you know I'd agree with you there. It's a very important point to be buying locally grown ingredients and, you know, the less air miles, the better. And of course, to ditch the processed food, it's something that we really should be taking steps towards. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you. A gorgeous book. I'm really excited about getting stuck into it, especially at this time of the year, because as you say, the dreading the Christmas and the dinners and, and, and all of that. So um I hopefully now I might be like one of your clients there that lost a couple of pounds over Christmas and you won't know me yeah, in the new absolutely, year. Absolutely. It's available Thanks. in all good bookshops and online, I presume. Yes, it is. It is. All good bookshops and on Amazon. So um I think it's it's a, a, a positive message which really is stop dieting and enjoy your food, you know? Absolutely. Karina, lovely to talk to you and best of luck with it. Thank you so much, Sharon. Really nice to speak with you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan. And just before the break, I was talking to Karina Melvin about her book, Artful Eating. And earlier in the programme, our resident wine expert, Ron Forrestal from Forrestal Wine Merchants, was here with advice about ordering wine when you're out. If you're just tuning in, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. The podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com and iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website, voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. So finally, Christmas is just around the corner and it does tend to sneak up on us. So let's get into the festive spirit in plenty of time this year and find out what is happening this weekend at the Fitzgerald's Woodlands House Hotel and Spa in Adair, County Limerick. Mary Fitzgerald is on the line now to tell us all about this fantastic festive event. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
Mary, you're great to take the call this evening and you're going to tell us a bit about a fabulous event that you have coming up in the Fitzgerald's Woodlands Hotel in Adair. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this. Yes, we're very excited about this new uh, event that we're having in uh, in the Fitzgerald's Woodlands House Hotel. It's uh, it's a showcase, um, I suppose, the commitment we have to our local suppliers and uh, all our local suppliers are taking a stand and um, we have a great group of uh, local suppliers and we're very lucky to have them. And it's wonderful in Limerick that we have such an array of such good suppliers with excellent produce. So we're joining with the uh, Dare Market Group uh, to present this uh, showcase, this event. So they'll have the stalls. We're doing a book demonstration. And uh, so there's, um, people have not come on and have a great opportunity to sample and see the suppliers supply us with, uh, in Woodlands uh, for uh, our, our great uh, food that we have. Can you give us a few examples of some of the producers that we can expect to see there on the day? Gyries egg producers there in Nakadera. They're supplying the eggs for a long, long time and they're a family business and they're, they're going to spend the thing, so they will be there, the Gyries. We also have Jim O'Brien from uh, Ballyhaha, which is cheese. Uh, we'll have the Broadricks from uh, Atelier with their pudding. Uh, there, there are actually four chief producers all together coming. They will really enhance with the cows uh, the and we have the, um, uh, the people from Essen as well. So it's, we're very lucky to have uh, so many good cheese producers in our area. It's fantastic, absolutely. And in addition to having the local food producers there, you'll be showcasing a lot of the food that you grow yourself on site. That's correct, yes. It's, our garden has been very successful. We only planted it this year and since the month of May. We only started the, the, the project on the last day of March by planting all the apple trees. And uh, we have a lot of apples planted. Uh, there is always a great history of producing apples, so I'm hoping that the same thing will happen in, uh, in the Woodlands Organic Farm. Um, so we have produced, or we have one ton house and we're about to uh, put up another one, and we grew a lot of stuff outdoors. We were able to produce all our own salad leaves, some of very exotic, um, great taste, and, of course, the quality and the freshness is incredible, and uh, we're now down to producing half of it at the moment, half the salad leaves, but we were able, from the end of May on, we were able to produce every salad leaf that people had in salad and woodlands, or all produced from our own organic garden, which is absolutely fantastic. We currently are using um, the red cabbage from the plot. Um, we are using kale and spinach, and we still have some salad leaves coming in as well. All our own herbs, we have plenty of herbs. And we were lucky that we were able to uh, pickle uh, some of the beets, some of the radishes, and uh, we have um, made our own crab apple chili as well. So from the wild crabs that are growing around the farm as well. So we have a lot of uh, bottling and we also made some tomato chutney as well from when we had the um, tomatoes. Uh, they're long gone now. We replaced them with salad uh, leaves. So it is, uh, there's a lot of work in it. I'm very lucky to have such a good team looking after it for me. That sounds like such an, a wonderful array of delicious produce that you're making there on site. And the theme for your event is a celebration of our food family bringing our house to your home. So you're literally doing that by producing all these different mm-hmm. chutneys and, and conserves and whatnot. Exactly, because we've always been making our own jam and marmalade. 
and uh, we make everything from scratch in woodlands. Uh, so, like, uh, using the best of local produce where possible, that we are totally committed to using local suppliers. And uh, we have um, uh, we have um, um, uh, honey from Adair as well. Um, they're producing honey down uh, in. Uh, the wild gardens at the back of uh, in the in the village, so that's absolutely fantastic as well. So we'll be using their honey as well in some of our projects. So um, it's great to have people like that, and some people now are coming forward and bringing their projects to us. People we we know it never existed. So like when you take then that yeah, they are market um, people, like they are all craft people. Uh, making their own, like you Bridget Lohan, they are making her own cards. You have um, Kira, who is um, uh, making uh, vegan products. Um, you have Maria, who is making her soaps. And uh, it, these are all people that are making, and Geraldine, who does all these frames. So they're, they're in market. The market only starts in the summertime, which is from spring to spring. So when you combine a craft and food, it's always a winner. And the perfect way to start off your Christmas shopping and you have a bit of a Christmas theme going on there and a lovely couple of events taking place that the children are really going to enjoy because you are very much a family hotel and you're very child-friendly. Yes, exactly. Woody will be on site. Our our mascot, Woody, will be on site uh, helping out on all the stands and viewing all the stands and he will be inviting all the children to come and join him and look at uh, to see how see how the cheese is produced and see you know look at all the eggs and to look at all the produce that these people you know, are are producing and it's very important that the children learn to know where our food is coming from and get them into the habit of enjoying the best and to be selective uh, and uh, because it's so important uh, we are what we eat there's no doubt about it and I'm very very conscious of that. And now there'll be plenty of fun activities for the kids uh, around. Uh, so, and of course, we culminate in the evening time. So we will be lighting uh, our Christmas uh, tree and our Christmas lights in Woodlands keep starting the Christmas season in Woodlands. And your Christmas tree is certainly a sight to behold because it is a giant Christmas tree. It, it's magnificent. Exactly. So we have been uh, all over the years uh, g- gathering, I suppose, uh, Lots of decorations, and uh, you know we really take great pride in the tree and the color scheme. We want to do the tree in the different years, and we try to keep up to fashion, and uh, you know always doing what's current. And we have we have coupled with the tree, we have a magnificent central grotto developed. And uh, we just did it last year, but we'll be upping it again this year, so the kids can come in and sit up on the, the sleigh. With the with the reindeers and it's a great attraction, so they will love that as well. But um, you know, there's always a very good Christmas atmosphere. Would and we really try try hard to do the best that can be possibly done. We're always looking out for new products and and to bring the very best to the local community, so that they uh, that we feel that we can bring the very best uh, and so they can have the most enjoyment and to make it a really special. Uh, Christmas event for for families, and you have a, a post box there as well that they can put their letters into to Santa because it's never too early to write that letter to Santa. I know he likes to be very well prepared and know in advance what he has to get the elves to make. 
Exactly, exactly. You have to be in because there's always certain toys that are on high demand. So if you have your order in first and your letter done, uh, of course it would be attended to. And uh, so it's better to have it done and rather than be rushing in the end. And I think children get confused when they when they're bombarded. So like they just they, they know clearly in their minds what they want and they best get their order in. Be sure to get what they want on Christmas morning. And once that order is in, it's very important not to change it. Exactly. Very important because they get confusing. Santa might get mixed up. Remember, <laughs> exactly. you should travel the world with lots of children in mind. So we don't want that to happen. Certainly we don't. No, I would not like that to happen in this house. That's for sure, Mary. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Exactly. Exactly. Well, finally, now you must tell us about the two charities that you're supporting whenever you're doing this event. Yes. One is the um, main shed in Adair. That's very close to our hearts. And uh, since it has been set up, the numbers are growing. Uh, we have a very good committee headed up by Sean Lohan. And uh, so that's a great charity. And they desperately need uh, cash to buy equipment and to get set up. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's a fantastic thing because it gives um, a, lot of, a lot of men... Um, you know, they don't join clubs or, uh, you know, they they don't have people to talk to. But when, since this, this mention has been set up in a day, uh, the, the numbers are growing. They're coming and having to chat. They have helped out with the tiny towns. They have made uh, uh, pots and, and planters. They've done gardens and everything. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something to get up in the morning. They come, they come and they know they'll meet like-minded people like themselves so to have the chat with and to enjoy. So that's so important. That's that's um, that's, that's that's one charity. And, and the Butterfly Club is the other one. Yes, the Butterfly Club. My sister was very involved. My sister, Theresa Kelly, was very involved in the beginning getting that set up with Mrs. Geary. And these people give respite to families. It's so important that this respite is available to families because uh, these children are a lot of work and the parents are exhausted and the other children in the house are exhausted. So uh, if they can drop their children into the butterfly club to allow them the time to go Christmas shopping, the children in the club would be very happy because they have plenty of activity and play with, with, with the other children. And it's allowing time for the other members of the family and the parents to get a bit of respite get a bit of a break to get their Christmas shopping done and things like that. So they operate a wonderful service, all voluntary, and these people have to be supported. And I'm delighted we have the opportunity through this uh, event to be able to, uh, you know, people make donations for both of charities. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's available for everybody uh, who have a, a child that needs respite. So it's, it's fantastic and the people that have set it up are amazing absolutely so we like to support them they have to be supported two very worthy charities and a great event it's the adair christmas fest it's at the fitzgerald's woodlands house hotel and spa on sunday the 19th of november from one o'clock until five o'clock mary thanks so much for telling us all about it thank you very much bon appetit yummy grubs up delicious mmm 
So a lovely event to look forward to this Sunday and I'm sure you'll all join me in congratulating Mary Fitzgerald on a recent award she received from the Irish Hotel Federation for her contribution to the tourism industry in the Shannon region. Very well deserved. Now, before we go, a quick shout out to the Bank of Ireland Newcastle West Enterprise Town Expo, which is on this Friday, the 17th of November in Desmond College. This is a showcase of businesses, community groups, sporting organisations, charities and schools in Newcastle West and its surrounding area. Everyone is welcome to it. It's a free event and there's lots of musical entertainment for all the family, for all ages. And the guest speaker is entrepreneur and broadcaster Bobby Kerr. And that's this Friday, November the 17th from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the Desmond College in Newcastle West, County Limerick. And as I said, everyone is welcome and it is free. So please do go along and show your support. And that brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Thanks so much to you for listening and to all of my guests, Ron Forrestal, Corinna Melvin and Mary Fitzgerald. Until next Tuesday, when I return at the same time, have a great week and bon appétit. Thanks for listening to The Best Possible Taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by thetaste.ie. Voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with The Best Possible Taste, email Sharon at SharonNoonan.com or tweet Sharon at Queen of Org. As in, Queen of Organisation. Bon appétit.